Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, December 3rd, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Arizona County certifies its election results. The Pentagon unveils its first new bomber in 30 years. Biden and Putin say they'd be open to talk under certain conditions. The EU sets a $60 price cap on Russian oil. An appeals court gives the Justice Department access to Trump's Mar-a-Lago documents. The U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces announced they're halting anti-IS operations. The Democratic Republic of Congo accuses M23 rebels of killing 50 civilians. The U.S. Labor Department reports job growth and wage increases for November. Pfizer says it will invest more than $2.5 billion to expand its European manufacturing. And Caltech physicists simulate a tiny wormhole in a lab. In our top story, Arizona County certifies election after judge's order. And here are the facts as agreed upon by National Review, CBS, Guardian, and New York Times. In Arizona, the three-member Cochise County Board of Supervisors on Thursday certified the results of the 2022 midterm elections after an order from Supreme Court Judge Casey McGinley. Previously, the board's two Republican members delayed certification over alleged concerns about vote tabulation machines, leaving Cochise as the last Arizona county to certify. The board's delay in certifying the votes prior to the November 28th deadline risked the exclusion of more than 47,000 votes. This prompted Democratic Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, now the governor-elect, to file lawsuits before the December 8th deadline. Her office has to complete a canvas of the whole state. The board voted 2-0 to zero to certify. The third member, Tom Crosby, had led the attempt to decertify the election and did not attend. The Republican board members were unable to obtain defense representation in Hobbs' lawsuit, and McGinley rejected a request to continue the hearing, instead making the order to certify effective immediately. The board's two GOP members said they wanted more time to hear concerns the state's electronic voting machines were inaccurate a theory that's been rejected by federal officials and the state's courts. The two Republican board members could face criminal charges over the certification delay. One Arizona law says a person can be charged with a Class 6 felony for failing to complete an assigned election-related duty. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts. Let's start the narrative spins with the Republican narrative from Breitbart. The Cochise supervisors took a stand to shine a light on Maricopa County's flawed election system. The election there featured technical problems at polling sites and long waits, and then officials took more than a week to count the votes. Although they complied with the judge's order and certified results, these supervisors were part of a cause that will hopefully be continued by gubernatorial hopeful Carrie Lake and her lawyers. And we counter that with the Democratic narrative coming from CNN. Since 2020, Arizona has become a hotbed for dangerous election conspiracy theories. This situation in Cochise County was the strongest example of the hold misinformation has taken on many citizens, despite evidence proving the machine's legitimacy. This ruling was a victory for those in the fact-based world against politicians who promote falsehoods to remain in or gain power. I think the real victims here are the uh, nice old folks who are, you know, volunteering at these voting stations. Maybe they get a free donut, maybe a cup of mediocre coffee, and they got to deal with all this. No kidding. 
Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. The U.S. Air Force unveils a new B-21 Raider stealth bomber. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, Associated Press, CBS, and CNN. The U.S. Air Force is expected to unveil its new B-21 Raider stealth bomber on Friday. Designed to conduct long-range and nuclear bomb missions, it's described as a sixth-generation plane, meaning it's the most advanced aircraft on Earth. Northrop Grumman Corporation was awarded the contract to build the plane in 2015. While the exact cost to develop, purchase, and operate the bombers is unclear, 2010 data put the price at $550 million each, around $753 million today. The Air Force reportedly plans to build 100. As the U.S.'s first new bomber in 30 years, it's expected to be able to disguise itself as another object to confuse adversaries and use new propulsion technologies and new manufacturing techniques and materials to ensure it will defeat the anti-access area denial systems it will face. Northrop says it won't have to go through so-called block upgrades, periodically upgrading its parts, because the new technology, capabilities, and weapons will be seamlessly incorporated through software upgrades. The unveiling comes amid rising tensions between the U.S. and China, which reportedly aims to have 1,500 nuclear warheads by the year 2035. The plane is named after the World War II Doolittle Raiders, 80 crewmen, led by then-Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle, which bombed Japan in 1942 in response to Pearl Harbor. Those were the facts. Thank you, Scott. And we look at the spins with a pro-establishment narrative coming first, being provided by 1945.com. The accomplishments of this program are twofold, as the U.S. faces growing scrutiny over both its budget and security. The B-21 was developed in a timely fashion and within budget, overcoming past failures to do so. Its stealth and long-range capabilities are also needed today as the U.S. faces hypersonic technologies and advanced mobile and deeply buried targets from its adversaries. The New York Times provides an establishment-critical narrative. This unveiling proves that the imbalance between military and non-military spending is alive and well. After decades of unnecessary wars, the Pentagon is now using the Cold War 2.0 trope to trick the nation into spending billions of dollars to fight its new enemies, Russia and China, a policy that completely disregards other major challenges. If the nation continues to hand over a blank check, there will be no signs of peace or military downsizing in sight. And our friends at Metaculous Prediction Community have come up with a nerd narrative for this story. And they say that there is a 19% chance that there will be a U.S.-China war by the year 2035. Should we be sharing this amount of information about this secret fighter? Yeah, it's scary. I don't know why they do that. Them saying that they can upgrade and control the plane via software exclusively, that just screams we're begging for a hacker to try to figure this out, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's going to be a data breach. We continue our coverage of the conflict in Ukraine with Day 282 as Biden is prepared to speak with Putin, and the Kremlin says Putin is open to negotiations. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and Ukraine Forum. During a state visit to the U.S. from French President Emmanuel Macron on Thursday, seen as a move to repair a frayed relationship between the U.S. and France amid European concerns over the Inflation Reduction Act, U.S. President Biden said he was prepared to speak to Russia's Vladimir Putin if it meant ending the war in Ukraine. Quote, the fact of the matter is, 
I have no immediate plans to contact Mr. Putin, Biden said in a response to a reporter. He continued, I'm prepared to speak with Mr. Putin if, in fact, there is an interest in him deciding he's looking for a way to end the war. He hasn't done that yet. If that's the case, in consultation with my French and my NATO friends, I'd be happy to sit down with Putin to see what he has in mind. On Friday, responding to the remarks, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told journalists, quote, The president of the Russian Federation has always been, is, and remains open to negotiations in order to ensure our interests. However, Peskov said the refusal of the U.S. to recognize, quote, the new territories as Russia was hindering a search for potential compromise. Peskov referenced Biden's previous comments in which he said negotiations are possible only after Putin leaves Ukraine and stressed that Putin was nonetheless open to negotiations, adding, quote, of course, the most preferable way to achieve our interests is through peaceful diplomatic means. The exchange comes following a two-hour televised press conference from Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on Thursday. While defending the attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure as a justified response to the threat posed by the Ukrainian military, he further accused the U.S. and NATO of hypocrisy and called them direct participants in the war, while also signaling that Russia was prepared to talk. Elsewhere, Ukraine's presidential advisor Mikhailo Podolyak on Wednesday said that as many as 13,000 Ukrainian servicemen have been killed in action, a figure that may be conservative given losses at earlier points were quoted at 100 to 200 men a day. Earlier, European Union Commission President Ursula von der Leyen generated controversy after publishing a video that said 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers were killed. On the ground, Russian attacks were reported in Donetsk, Dnipropetrovsk, Kharkiv, and Kherson. Military developments in these areas include Ukrainian officials said three civilians were killed and seven more were injured in Kherson in the last 24 hours, while six civilians were injured in Donetsk. Two people were injured in Kharkiv while another civilian was reported in Dnipropetrovsk, and officials from the Donetsk People's Republic reported that two civilians were killed in Ukrainian attacks. Meanwhile, following earlier reports of letter bomb threats in Spain, a spokesman for Ukraine's foreign ministry has alleged that Ukraine's embassies in Hungary, the Netherlands, Poland, Croatia, and Italy all received, quote, blood-stained packages containing animal eyes on Friday. We have reason to believe that a well-planned campaign of causing terror and intimidating the embassies and consulates of Ukraine is taking place, he said. Thanks for those uh, disturbing facts, Eric, on this long-running story. We have an anti-Russia narrative coming from Newsweek. In falsely accusing the U.S. and NATO of being participants in this war, the Russian foreign minister slipped up and called this what it really is, a Russian war, not a special military operation. The true motives of Russian atrocities cannot be obfuscated. And a pro-Russian narrative is coming from Fox News. Of course, the U.S. and NATO are participants in this conflict. They are supplying weapons, training personnel, and are involved in planning and logistics. However, despite the West's behavior and characterizations, Russia is nevertheless prepared to hold negotiations. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there is a 2% chance that Putin and Zelensky will meet to discuss the peaceful resolution of the Russian-Ukraine conflict before the year 2023. Curious to know how those bloodstained packages with animal eyes were delivered. Was that like a, a same-day delivery for Amazon or? Probably DHL, right? <laughs> <It's> a... <laughs> Keeping our focus on Europe, the European Union caps Russian oil at $60 per barrel. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, Wall Street Journal, Euronews, TASS, and ABC News. 
On Friday, the European Union agreed to a $60 per barrel cap on Russian oil after the final holdout, Poland, agreed to the proposal that was drawn up by the G7. EU nations will block insurance and shipping companies from transporting Russian oil to third-party countries if they are sold beyond the capped price. The deal aims to limit Moscow's revenue from oil sales, which it uses to help finance the Ukraine war, while keeping global crude prices stable. The price cap is designed to allow Russia to continue to supply energy markets, while deterring the Kremlin from recouping the full benefit of its sales. Initially, the G7 proposed a price cap of $65 to $70 per barrel, with no adjustment mechanism. But since Russian Ural's crude already trades lower, Poland, Lithuania, and Estonia rejected that level as not achieving its objective of cutting the Kremlin's revenues. The price cap level will be revised every two months. Russian Foreign Ministry spokesperson Maria Zakharova has criticized the price cap by stating, We have repeatedly said that such measures are not just a non-market mechanism. This is an anti-market measure that destroys supply chains and can significantly complicate the situation on global energy markets. The cap is viewed as geopolitically risky. If the price cap fails or Russia retaliates by stopping oil exports, energy prices worldwide could potentially soar, with cascading effects on U.S. gas prices and global food insecurity. Several spins have emerged from this story, and we begin with an anti-Russian narrative coming from Politico. This price cap is a step in the right direction, but sanctions could have been set at $30 to $40 per barrel for Russia to fill the maximum bite. $60 per barrel is a tick above Russian production costs, so the Kremlin should feel relieved it wasn't more. And the pro-Russian narrative comes from TASS. A so-called cap on Russian oil prices is an anti-market measure that destroys supply chains and can significantly complicate global energy markets. It's nothing less than a price dictatorship and Western vengeance. The repercussions of this proposal will be disastrous for everyone. And we have a cynical narrative coming from New York Times. Regardless of the geopolitical intentions of the EU and G7, implementation of the price cap could be incredibly complicated to manage. The challenge for the EU and G7 is to make sure the price point is correct because, if it's miscalculated, the consequences could be harmful to the entire world economy. All eyes will be on the implementation of this cap in the coming weeks and months. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Al Jazeera. It's hypocritical to impose sanctions on Russia for invading Ukraine, but not on the U.S. for invading Iraq for equally unjustified reasons, or on Israel for invading and annexing Arab lands. And Metaculus is even chiming in on this story with their nerd narrative, saying there's a 98% chance that Russia will be the world's most sanctioned country by February 22, 2023. What's gas price in your neck of the woods, Eric? You know what? I haven't been paying attention because I had to um, I had to upgrade my fuel to 91 octane. So I just kind of ignore oh. it because it's painful at the pump anyway. So your frame of reference is all out of whack. It yeah. is. It is. Yeah. In our next story, an appeals court gives the Department of Justice access to the Mar-a-Lago documents. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, Daily Caller, Reuters, Politico, and BBC News. On Thursday, the three-judge U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit reversed a Florida federal judge's ruling that prohibited the FBI and Department of Justice from using nearly all documents seized in the raid of former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence on August 8th in their investigation. The decision suspends the third-party special master review of the documents, as had been ordered by U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon. 
The court wrote that, quote, the law is clear and that it can't write a rule to block government investigations after the execution of the warrant. FBI agents seized roughly 11,000 records, including about 100 marked as classified. The court admitted that the search of the former president's property was, quote, extraordinary, but it didn't give the judiciary license to interfere in an ongoing investigation. Trump may appeal the decision with the Supreme Court. Two of the three judges, Andrew Brasher and Britt Grant, were Trump's own appeals court picks. The panel stated that Trump's attorney failed to show that law enforcement acted with, quote, callous disregard to Trump's rights and gave the former president a week to respond to the decision. The special master, an independent lawyer who decides if records within a case are covered under attorney-client or executive privilege, in this case, was Raymond Deary, a 78-year-old New York judge originally nominated by President Ronald Reagan in 1986. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a pro-Trump narrative on this story coming from the conservative treehouse. Trump's legal team hasn't been treated within their legal rights throughout this entire convoluted mess created by the DOJ. Under pretense of national security interest, they've been denied access to the warrant's contents and its probable cause affidavit. How can we know if Trump's Fourth Amendment rights were violated if the DOJ isn't required to produce the legal basis of the warrant? And we have a Democratic narrative coming from Politico. The decision is a decisive defeat for Trump and is unlikely to be overturned in the event of an appeal. It's not surprising, given the justified skepticism of the mostly Trump-appointed panel, which rightly resisted the former president's attempts to secure preferential treatment. Shifting our focus to Syria, where U.S.-backed forces suspend their anti-IS operations. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the National News, Reuters, and our Shark al Assad. The U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, announced on Friday that it would suspend all coordination and joint counterterrorism operations with the U.S.-led coalition battling remnants of the Islamic State, or IS, as well as all the joint special operations we were carrying out regularly. The SDF stated that the reason for this decision was Turkey's alleged increased attacks on SDF-controlled territory in northern Syria following the bombing of a popular tourist street in Istanbul last month. Turkey believes that the attack was carried out by a Kurdish militant group associated with the People's Protection Units, YPG, a key component of the SDF, and considers it an affiliate of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, which the U.S. and EU have designated a terrorist group. Another reason the SDF gave for the halt in operations was the need for intellectual energy or planning to protect northeastern Syria from a potential Turkish ground invasion. Washington is both an ally of the SDF and Turkey complicating the situation. Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Patrick Ryder told reporters that operations against IS had not stopped. However, Ryder said on Tuesday that the U.S. had reduced the number of partnered patrols with the SDF, as the SDF had reduced the number of their own patrols, after Turkish strikes in the region and ahead of the feared ground invasion by Ankara. This story has spawned a couple of spins, beginning with Narrative A coming from Ruda.net. Though Turkey says it's fighting terrorism, in reality, it's just attacking the Kurdish people. Turkey has always sided with groups like IS when it served its interests. And another ground invasion would be a gift to the group as SDF forces would be pulled from other regions in northeast Syria to resist Turkish aggression thus allowing IS fighters to regroup and launch attacks. The U.S. must pressure its so-called ally into not attacking northern Syria. 
and Daily Sabah brings us Narrative B. Turkey can't allow rampant terror on its border with Syria. Though the SDF pretends to be some sort of bulwark against IS, Turkey has consistently proven a reliable partner against the group. The Turkish army has killed over 4,000 IS terrorists, and its local Syrian allies, the Syrian National Army, are more than capable of handling security in northern Syria. Turkey must respond to Kurdish terrorism. Turning our attention to the Democratic Republic of Congo as they accuse M23 rebels of killing 50 civilians. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Associated Press, East African, Voices of America, and RFI. The Democratic Republic of Congo's military on Thursday accused the M23 rebel group of killing 50 civilians in the country's conflict-ridden east, despite a recent ceasefire agreement. According to the DRC Armed Forces, the M23 attack took place Tuesday in the village of Kishish, near the regional capital of Goma, with Rwandan troops also allegedly involved. The UN peacekeeping mission, MINUSCO, confirmed that a, quote, high number of civilians were killed. Late Thursday, M23 issued a statement rejecting the alleged killing of civilians as baseless allegations. Kinshasa accuses Kigali of supporting the March 23rd movement, which is largely made up of Congolese Tutsi. Rwanda rejects the claims, which have also been raised by the UN and Washington. The latest fighting occurred after regional leaders at a summit in the Angolan capital of Luanda agreed to a ceasefire beginning on November 25th and also demanding that M23 withdraw from areas it occupies in North Kivu. The militia claim that the agreement doesn't affect them, however, as they weren't represented at the summit. Meanwhile, a new round of peace talks kicked off in the Kenyan capital of Nairobi earlier this week, facilitated by former Kenyan President Kenyatta. The third inter-Congolese dialogue for the first time includes representatives of the main rebel groups to discuss solutions to the conflict that has claimed hundreds of thousands of lives and displaced millions. M23 isn't represented at the talks as Kinshasa is demanding the militia's withdrawal from eastern Congo as a precondition for its inclusion in negotiations. The Tutsi-led fighters have accused Kinshasa of failing to implement a 2013 peace deal that granted the rebels DRC citizenship and integration into the DRC armed forces. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a Narrative A from the East African. Despite one peace talk following another, DRC President Tisa Kedi keeps fueling the conflict to justify the postponement of the December 2023 elections. While Kinshasa directs the international community's focus exclusively on the allegedly Rwandan-backed M23, there are more than 400 other rebel groups in eastern Congo. As long as Kinshasa blames Rwanda for its security issues, it will be challenging for the international community to provide the required support needed to end this conflict. And we have an establishment critical narrative coming from North Africa Post. While the East African community and Kinshasa are constantly engaged in new efforts to finally end the conflict in Eastern DRC, the West, which usually never tires of pretending to be committed to world peace, is obviously not very interested in this particular conflict. It's high time for the so-called international community to abandon its double standards and put credible pressure on Rwanda, as well as Uganda, to end their support for rebel groups operating in resource-rich eastern Congo. The U.S. economy adds 263,000 jobs in November. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Forbes, CNN, and CNBC. The Department of Labor released its monthly job snapshot Friday morning, reporting that non-farm payrolls added 263,000 jobs in November, 
lower than October's 284,000, but higher than the predicted 200,000, with unemployment remaining at 3.7%. Restaurants and other industries in the leisure and hospitality sector represented a large portion of the job growth, adding 88,000 jobs. Despite the Federal Reserve, or Fed's, effort to cool the labor market and slow wage growth, average hourly earnings rose 0.6% over the month. Fed Chair Jerome Powell's plan of hiking interest rates in order to reduce inflation aims to promote a contraction of the jobs market, which is an indication that the strategy is working. Earlier in the week, Powell announced the Fed would continue to maintain its restrictive monetary policy and increase interest rates, but at lower rates. The stock market fell in light of the report as higher job growth and wages can signify that interest rates will continue to rise. Thank you, Scott, for the facts of that story. Let's look at the spins. There are two of them, beginning with a Democratic narrative coming from CNN. The Biden economy continues to roar as the Labor Department reported another massive increase in jobs and wages under President Biden's leadership. After nonsense claims of a recession, detractors must face the fact that the American economy is growing and will continue to do so under Biden. Town Hall brings us the Republican narrative. The U.S. economy doesn't actually appear to be rebounding under Biden's leadership. Despite superficial appeal, the added job and wage growth signal that Biden's inflation continues to be out of control, and the Congressional Budget Office estimates more economic pain for the American people in 2023. In our next story, Pfizer will invest $2.5 billion to expand manufacturing in Europe. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Globe and Mail, Market Screener, Reuters, and 1470 WMBD. U.S.-based drug manufacturer Pfizer Incorporated has said it will invest a combined $2.5 billion in Belgium and Ireland, hoping to make up lost revenue as COVID vaccine sales decline and patents on other drugs expire. This includes an investment of $1.26 billion announced Friday to expand its PERS facility in Belgium, which, in a partnership with German company BioNTech, played a key role in the production of its COVID mRNA vaccines. Meanwhile, its further $1.26 billion investment in Ireland, announced Thursday, will add 400 to 500 jobs and allow it to double its production of material for biological drugs and vaccines. The Belgian PERS investment is expected to add 250 jobs to expand the finalizing and bottling of drug products, as well as its packaging and storage capabilities. With patents for big sellers like cancer treatment Ibrantz and arthritis drug Zelgance running out by 2025, Pfizer hopes to introduce 19 new medicines, including treatments for ulcerative colitis and migraines and a vaccine for RSV. The move comes as the European energy crisis is pushing some industries to consider moving to different markets, including the U.S. Pfizer has also announced plans to expand its manufacturing at its Kalamazoo, Michigan, Rocky Mount, North Carolina, and McPherson, Kansas plants. It also plans to spend roughly $1 billion on gene therapies at sites in Massachusetts and North Carolina. The investment for the pharmaceutical giant, which has already grown its workforce since the pandemic from 2,800 to 4,500, comes as European corporations deal with soaring costs of energy, labor, raw materials, and credit. Kaiser Family Foundation brings us the establishment critical narrative. Having made billions of dollars off its monopoly on vaccines and undue influence on policymakers, Pfizer has come out the one true winner of the COVID pandemic. Now having finally run its money-making racket dry, the company is looking to Europe for its next unscrupulous profiteering venture. 
And there is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Fierce Pharma. This investment, particularly for Ireland, is a continuation of a half a century of business between Pfizer and its European partners. This expansion is an opportunity to advance both Europeans' health and their economy and is a smart business decision for the pharmaceutical giant. Our final story, physicists simulate a baby wormhole in lab. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, Space, SciTech Daily, New York Times, and The Guardian. Physicists at Caltech recently simulated two tiny black holes in a quantum computer and transmitted a message through the resultant traversable tunnel, or a theoretical wormhole, without disrupting space and time. The team first developed a baby Sochtek Yekataev, or SYK, quantum system and entangled it with another SYK system. They then introduced a qubit, the basic unit of quantum computing equivalent to a standard bit in traditional computing, to one of the SYKs. As a result, information traveled from one quantum system and emerged from another via quantum teleportation in the language of quantum physics. However, in the language of gravity, this replicated a journey through a traversable wormhole, also known as an Einstein-Rosen bridge. A wormhole is a rupture between two remote regions in space-time. The Caltech physicist's experiment allows researchers to explore the possibility of sending information from one point in space to another through either wormholes or quantum teleportation. This is important because what we have here in its construct and structure is a baby wormhole, said Maria Spiropoulou, Caltech physicist and co-author of the research. Will the latest breakthrough allow spacecraft or living beings to traverse unimaginable distances easily? Experimentally, for me, I will tell you it's very, very far away, she disclosed. Scott Aronson, a quantum computing expert at the University of Texas in Austin, claims the experiment doesn't teach us anything about quantum gravity that we didn't already know and could have been studied using a pencil and paper. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Let's take a look at the two spins that have emerged, beginning with Narrative A coming from Futurism.com. Claims in many media outlets that this experiment has turned fiction into reality are overstatements. Scientists did not bring a wormhole into actual physical existence. They merely used Google's 72-qubit Sycamore 2 quantum processor to establish a quantum system which could exhibit the key properties of a gravitational wormhole. And wrapping up the show with Reuters and Narrative B. Per comments from the Caltech researchers, there is still a long way to go before we can send humans or animals through an artificially fabricated portal. However, this trial has made a key step forward in experimental science by successfully finding a way to explore the fundamental ideas of our universe in a laboratory setting. Additionally, wormhole simulation in a quantum computer adds weight to the holographic principle of the universe. This experiment is a huge development. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, December 3rd, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Would you like more information on Improve the News? Check out our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.